People have absolutely no confidence in Baltimore City Police. They violated their constitutional rights to be secure within their person and their property. It's like the police don't have any respect for us, period. It's a lot of brothers and women, too, that's incarcerated for things they had nothing to do with. Not a panacea. Constitutional policing just means treat everyone equally. Welcome to Truth and Reconciliation, a podcast that recounts the troubled history of law enforcement in Baltimore and the search for solutions to heal from it. A forum for providing a voice for people who have suffered at the hands of law enforcement and to inform and empower others through their experiences. And a show ultimately about holding power accountable through stories, thoughts, and discussion. A podcast about what ails us and sustains us, too, as we try to cure the violence that plagues the city. I'm Stephen Janis. I'm Taya Graham. And I'm Sean Yose, and we're your hosts. I, I, my, my whole thought process was, I'm going to lose my job. That was, that was pretty much what kind of struck through my, because I had to work the next day. Today we'll be exploring the personal consequences of a police policy that continues to haunt the city today. A discussion with a victim of the city's zero-tolerance policy. A strategy of mass arrest that continues to affect the people swept up into it. All that coming up next on Truth and Reconciliation. When I return to from which I came, will I find a ditch of gloom and pain? On 7-5-2006, at 1215 hours, I observed Mr. spit on the sidewalk while walking westbound in the 1900 block of Christian Street. Upon making contact with Mr., he could not produce a state-issued identification, at which time he was arrested and charged. On July 4, 2006, at approximately 2015 hours, while working plain clothes in a marked patrol car, I was traveling south on the 2700 block of Huntington Avenue. I observed a black male, later identified as walking south on the same block, at which time I observed him pull the wrapper off an ice cream and throw the wrapper on the ground. At this time, I stopped my patrol car and approached Mr. to talk to him. I asked Mr. if he had any identification on him, and he stated no. He was then arrested and transported to central booking and charged accordingly. That was Taya, Taya Graham, reading from statements of probable cause that actually are remnants of a policy called zero tolerance. Taya, tell, tell me a little bit about what you were reading so that people understand what it is that they're hearing. So what I'm looking at right now are actual statements filled out by Baltimore City police officers. If you noticed a couple of the statements of probable cause I read were actually from the 4th of July. So the last one I read was... A, from 2006 or seven. when is this? From 2006, yeah. and which is probably the height of the zero tolerance policing practice. Um, This man who was of age was arrested for drinking a beer on the 4th of July. The officer Mm. felt that it made sense to arrest someone for having an open container of beer on the 4th of July. Now, Sean, you covered zero tolerance for the Afro newspaper. You know, does this, what do these stories conjure for you when you hear them, people getting arrested for drinking a beer or... or Well, one of the things that it conjures is, you know, apartheid. Mm -hmm. I mean, if you don't have your ID... You can't you you can't walk the street without an, an identification, which is in in the United States, um, 
not su- it's not supposed to be that way, right? No, I, I just wanted to say that Sean said the right word there, apartheid, because I can tell you from my own personal experience, I have seen residents in Hamden, which is a predominantly white neighborhood, celebrate the 4th of July with an open container of beer, and I have never heard any reports of them being caught up in these kind of sweeps and taken to jail for doing well, so. Well, I, I would go even further. I would say that there, there are neighborhoods in Dundalk and Essex and other neighborhoods, uh, predominantly white working class neighborhoods, that people will drink beer and whatever else on their porches and you right. better not come up on their porch mm-hmm. acting like you're going to arrest them. I mean, well, honestly. And we used to always point out at the Baltimore Examiner when we covered Zero Tolerance and we would write about these stories about people getting arrested for alcoholic beverages. They, they would, To be fair, they would have to go to Raven Stadium because you have, you know, the tailgate parties where people are drinking right. outside and it would be, you know, it would be a great opportunity to do some zero tolerance. Oh, right. Or do some zero tolerance at Preakness, yeah. for example. Yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah. So, you know, the, I think one of the reasons we've decided to do this podcast, Truth and Reconciliation, is because, you know, the city has remained silent yes. on the legacy of what we're talking about. The city has not wanted to talk. And, and let me give it just a quick example and you guys can respond to this. Uh, uh, how different it is in the city, how how we don't talk and how we're not considered agents. Um, we, Tay and I, were covering the March for Our Lives. We were at, outside Baltimore City Hall yeah. two weeks ago. And we were waiting for the students to come because we wanted to talk to the students and see how they felt about attending. And the buses were coming back to City Hall. And when the bus pulled up, the students started getting out. Tay and I came up with our camera. And we said, can we talk to some of the students and see what they think? And a, a, a supervisor or a teacher said, no, you can't talk to them. And he started yelling at the kids. He said, get in the van. Get out of here. Right. Get in the van. Now, let's compare that to the treatment of the Parkland students. Oh, of course. Who became right. national the International celebrities. Celebrities. Mm. To talk about their pain. And yet... The people of the city, the right. children of the city. The black children. Of the city. Black children of the city, excuse me. They aren't given the same stage. They're not allowed to voice themselves in the same way. Which is the whole point of this podcast. Because we are going to give voice to the people who have yes. suffered from this. Absolutely. And when you talk about suffering, and we talk about the fact that you have people who were caught up in the midst at the height of the zero tolerance policing policy and in 2018 still haven't been repaired right. from those incidents. Some people lost their jobs. Absolutely. Some people lost their homes. Yes. Uh, some people lost their relationships. Yes. Um, all because of this whole, I mean, in, in gen- generally, uh, a policy that was considered unconstitutional oh, and, absolutely. Ar- and, and arrests that were considered illegal. And I think Many it's, of them. it's part of the reason that when those children got off the bus that they were told not to talk. Because I think it has always been we have this dark uh, conspiratorial criminal justice system and you just got to keep your mouth shut in Baltimore and you can't you don't have agency and I think it's related I don't think it's completely I, I when I looked at those kids from Parkland and you know they're all over television and being embraced and celebrated yes. and I think of our own children who can't even talk to a local reporter off a bus about going to a protest right I think that's where <clears throat> it begins telling young yeah. African-Americans in Baltimore that they don't have the right to speak up is the same reason that zero tolerance was allowed to flourish for as long as it did. Can you imagine how white communities would have reacted if swaths of their population were being arrested on the 4th of July for people having an open container of beer? So that's going to be what we're going to be talking about. And and today, our first guest uh, on Truth and Reconciliation will be Evan Howard, who is a person who was arrested during zero tolerance and who did speak out. And so coming up next on Truth and Reconciliation, we'll be talking to Evan about his experiences.
And now I'd like to introduce our guest, Evan Howard. In the summer of 2005, Evan was one of tens of thousands of African Americans who were illegally arrested. But Evan did something not many victims of zero tolerance were willing to do. He spoke out. In fact, Evan became the plaintiff in a successful lawsuit against the Baltimore Police Department. And he has joined us today to talk about the consequences of his arrest and how the impact of that policy has affected the entire city. Evan, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. So first of all, just tell us a story of your arrest. What, what happened in 2005? How did you end up being arrested? Just give us like sort of a narrative of what happened. Okay. Um, actually, su- today's Friday. Sunday will actually make 13 years since that, that wow. has happened. Mm-hmm. 13 years. Um, and I guess I've, as I've... I mean, I guess it's really good to talk about it. Um, mm-hmm. I guess as I've kind of gotten older, you know, I haven't really thought about it as much. But um, definitely having this opportunity has kind of helped me to kind of go back and, you know, relive some of those different things and how, you know, as I guess change, how things have changed you know, since then. Um, so, like I said, um, on that night, I had just got off of work. Um, it was about, I think I had got home about 8 o'clock. And I, th- I remember that night because I actually had a date that night. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so I went to the, so I live on the 1300 block of Poplar Grove, which is basically um, the back of my house is Southwest District. The the front of my house is Western District. Mm-hmm. So at that time, um, Poplar Grove was, you know, it was a really bad area. And um, at that time, we had a lot of homicides. Um, that's where, you know, you started to get in a lot of these Crips and Bloods that were starting to, I guess, come into Baltimore. So just a lot of um, activity was going on in that area at that time. Um, so like I said, I had just got off work. So I, I lived in the 1300 block of Poplar Grove. Um, so I, there's a corner store that we normally go to that's about a block from my house. Um, so I had walked to the corner store. Um, when I got to the corner store, there were two friends of mine that we kind of hang out. Um, so we, we started to engage in a conversation. Um, and one of my friends, he had a car and he, he was actually parked in front of the corner store, which was on the corner of Winchester and Poplar Grove. Um, so we conversated for a little bit and then there was an unmarked car that came kind of like out of nowhere. <clears throat> and they came. They, of course, they jumped out. It was three, um, I believe it was three plane cops. Um, actually, one of the cops was a really corrupt cop, and I think he ended up getting fired. Um, that was Gemini Jones. Gemini right? Jones, mm-hmm. yeah. That's right. He's famous. So um, I already knew who he was before because um, I knew people who have had interactions with him, and he was a well-known in that in that area. Mm-hmm. So... Um, so he, he came out. First thing that they asked is, did you guys know about any recent homicides? So I said, we said no. Um, the next thing that they began to do is they asked us our ages. I was 19. The other, um, it was two other individuals. Um, there was, I believe, the other guy, Tyrone Braxton, who was also in this case as well. He was 18. And then there was another individual who was 16. So they told the guy that was 16, go home. So he left. So after that, um, you know, they sat us on the curb. Then they started to search us. Um, 
And then, you know, they basically arrested us for, for loitering. That's what they said that they did. So they arrested you just for standing there in the corner. You were at the store. Correct. And what did you think? How did you feel at that point? Um, honestly, once I kind of processed everything, I'm, I just thought everything was going to go downhill for me. Um, I, I, my, my whole thought process was I'm going to lose my job. That was that was pretty much what kind of struck through my because I had to work the next day. Right. And you know, my job if you do a no call no show, that's right. it. So, and I was just I was it really took me a while to kind of process all of that. Um so we so they began to take us down. Actually, they took us on there's a street Ellica Drive and we picked up another individual who was sitting on the curb. At this point, we were still in the unmarked car. When we got to Ellica Drive, they took us, and that's where we met the paddy wagon. So even before we got to Southwest, I mean, well, after we got in there, they took us to Southwest District, and we spent some time there. We didn't get out the car. We was just there. Um, probably about 10, 1030, I believe, we got to Central Booking. And it was cold in, in April, as, you, as most of the time it is. So we actually stood out line outside. It was so overpacked. We stood outside. It was a line to go in there for a long time. Now, mind you, the flex-off cuffs were so tight, my fingers started to go numb. These were the plastic cuffs. So we waited outside for a long time. So when we got in there, um, even before then, um, you know, Jim and I said, oh, you guys are going to be out tomorrow. I'm like, and and that's one thing I did stress. I'm like, I got to go to work tomorrow. Like, we didn't do anything. I got to go to work tomorrow. So... He was like, oh, you guys are going to be out tomorrow, blah, blah, blah. Um, so we get down to Central Booking. Um, once we finally get processed, we actually got strip searched. So where we were bare naked in one of these rooms where they basically searched us. Um, so I got my, I was able to get my phone call and, you know, my cousin who was a former um, correctional officer, because I was actually terrified. I didn't even want to call my mom. So I even I was scared to call her because I knew she would freak out. So and luckily the guy who um, who they let go, he got in contact with my mom. So she knew. But I still didn't want to call her. So I I talked to my cousin. He was like, you're going to be there for the whole weekend. And that's the mentality that if you get locked up, especially on a Friday night, you're going to you're going to spend the whole weekend. there. Absolutely. So. um, So after we got processed, um, they put us in a holding cell, and it had to be at least 10 people in there, probably a little bit bigger than this room with with a bathroom. Um, and we spent there, I spent there 54 hours hmm. in the prison, I mean, in Central Booking. In that in that holding cell? In the hold, the, sometimes I, I, I was, they moved me, but I spent 54 hours in there. Um, it was very uncomfortable because you had a lot of different individuals you know, I had guys in there that were smoking weed, you know, doing crack. Everything you could imagine was going on in there. And, and it, no one told you anything? Like, said, what you've been charged with? or I never saw a commissioner. I never received any charge papers. Anything. So the individual who got arrested with me, he actually got out. I think he spent maybe like 36. He got out Sunday at 10 a.m. I didn't get out until Monday at 4 a.m. Mm. And so when I got out, it w- it was one of those things where once, because after you once they tell you you're gonna get out, there's another holding cell that they take you to. 
before you get out. So I didn't even care at this point what time they told me I was going to go home. I, I just I just knew I was going to go home. But before that, I was even terrified that, that I was going to get forgotten in there because I never saw any commissioner. I never mm-hmm. received any charge papers. So I was I was terrified. It's like it's like Soviet Union or something. You were just yeah. incarcerated for no re- You had no idea why you were in there. No processing. No one talked to you. Nobody talked to me at all. Um, you spent more than 48 hours in jail because you went down to the corner store. Basically. I mean, that's what yeah. it boils down to. So when I got out, I got out at 4 a.m. And I didn't have, my phone was dead. I didn't have any more money. Um, I actually walked from Greenmount to Poplar Grove at 4 a.m. in the morning. That's wow. a that's a long that's walk. Crazy. That that's is a long walk. walk. And How did you feel at that point? Either. How did you feel at that point? Actually, I was I was terrified that I would get arrested again because right. there was a guy that when I came in there, he had just got out and he had got arrested again. Now, if you're walking 4 a.m., and you look suspicious, right. if you don't have any paperwork to say you were released, they will lock you up again. Wow, what a story. So, I mean, it, what, did you lose your job? No, I didn't. Huh. Um, luckily, my mom worked at my job, so she kind of communicated um, She communicated that with my job. So, right. no, I, I didn't lose well, Thank God for that. So, and you decided to join a lawsuit against the city. Why did you, you know, a lot of people are afraid because they're afraid, you know, especially Gemini Jones, who was really quite a presence in that, in your neighborhood. What made you decide to join the lawsuit? Um, actually, it was my mom, to be 100% honest. Um, she was very, she was very terrified. Um, she was very pissed off, to be 100% honest. <laughs> um, so, kind of how we got connected with the ACLU was, um, my mom, she got in contact with, I think, Warren, what's the attorney? Warren, Warren, Warren Brown. Brown. Warren Brown. And somehow we got in contact with WJZ. Like, she was calling, like, the news stations and everything. So she contacted, um, I think she got in contact with a guy at WJZ. And actually, we did a, um, an interview with him. Um, and he put us in contact with the ACLU. Um, so we kind of met with them. Honestly, to be 100% honest, I just wanted to just to be over Um, you know, looking back on it now, I'm, I'm ecstatic that she did that. Um, but you know, that was, she played the big, she played the big part in going through that. I mean, I was at this point, I was still young. Um, because even with going through it, you know, the, the, the other issue was, you know, being, cause I kind of got joked about it in the community, you know, some of the guys that I kind of came up with kind of joked me about it. You know, that kind of thing. But, I mean, going through that, I mean, they, they treat you really like an animal down in Central Booking. Yes. And, you know, it's just really unfortunate that a guy or officer, especially of the same color as me, would treat, you know, treating me like that. Well, brother, I'm, I'm here to tell you, as an older brother, um, a black cop will sweat you quicker than a white cop will <laughs> in a lot of situations. So that's just that's just reality of of law enforcement in America, for real, from Baltimore to L.A. So, Did joining the lawsuit help you in any way? Did, did, did it help you take back a little bit of the power that you felt was taken away from you when you were locked in jail for 54 hours? It did. Um, I think one of the things, looking at it, uh, going through that, at the time, I was a, I was a freshman at Morgan. Mm-hmm. So... Um, 
I was looking at it. We kind of looked at it from the perspective is, okay, now this is how they get you in the system. Now I have a record. Right. So now if I'm trying to get jobs and I'm trying to do something positive, you know, my my main goal was, you know, my main ticket to kind of get out the hood per se was, okay, I'm going to do this. I'm going to do the school thing, get a job and I can get out. So I felt like, you know, this was the system trying to keep me in prison in the community mm. because essentially, you know, I could, if they would have charged me for something serious, more serious or whatever, you know, people may be may not look at me for jobs. Right. So that was one of the big things. And I think from the lawsuit, that's how it came apart about, you know, getting your record expunged without foregoing your right for, um, I think, lawsuits mm-hmm. and stuff like right. that. Yeah. Right. So, I mean, looking at it, that, it, it helped me there. Um, they tried to make that part of the expungement process that if you wanted to be expunged, you had to forego your right to sue. Correct. Yeah. Um, and, Very you know, I've, and I've watched other people in the community kind of go through it. Um, so it, it definitely it has it has helped um, looking at it still 13 years now from later. And we're still dealing with some of those things. Um, you know, it's just mind boggling. But, you know, at the at the time, as I gotten older, I've it's, it's made them a lot more sense to me now than as a 19 young man. Mm-hmm. I didn't really understand it then. And, you know, just going through it, if I can help the next person, um, that was more important than anything. Um, because if nobody stands up, this these things are con- going to continue to happen over and over. Right. So many African-American men and women were caught up in this zero-tolerance policing. How do you think it affected the city? Do you think we're still seeing effects from it? Yeah. and I, I, I still think we're see, seeing effects um, of, of it. You know, one of the things, mentally for me, after that situation happened, I really didn't want any involvement with the police after that. And there were there were even story, you know, and not even just that situation, but I've been a part of situations. I remember a time where I was driving in my car. We were going up Poplar Grove, me and a friend of mine, and there was an unmarked car that was coming on Baker Street. And I had this feeling, hey, he's going to pull us over. Mm-hmm. So he kind of took a side street to come back. So he met us on Poplar Grove and North Avenue. And at the time, I believe I was working for Pennsylvania Department of Transportation. This might have been in 2010, something like that. And he threw all of my stuff out on North Avenue. Oh, God. So You mean like your computers? and, and- Like I had like, like I had my book bag and <laughs> on my work stuff. He was just like, you know, hey, where are the guns? Mm-hmm. And, Incredible. you know, it... Like actually, to be honest with you, I, at that point I broke I broke down and cried on the side of the curb. And he also took my car keys, so I had to call nine one one to tell him, "Hey, this guy, these two guys just pulled me over. They got my keys, and they came back around the block, and they were hee hee ha ha about it." Did they take your car? No, they they didn't take my car, but they took my keys. Why? I don't know. Sweat you? <laughs> I mean, they were yeah. sweating you. I mean, that's that's that's. And that's... so you know, it's not even just individuals who are not doing what they're supposed to do in the in the communities that are getting hassled even the ones that and i mean generally you know i didn't i don't 
I kind of did what I needed to do um, in terms of work, go to school, and right. do what, you know, do. You were doing the right thing. Right. And I think sometimes you kind of become naive that this won't happen to you. Right. Right. And that was a big eye opener for me. Like, even the guy that is doing the right thing can get put in these situations. In 2010, did you find out who those cops were who, who pulled you over? I didn't. I didn't. Uh-huh. And actually, that was one of the things that I've never. T- well, she, she may, she may, she may or may not know, but I never told my mother this because mm-hmm. I knew she would freak out even worse. <laughs> I mean, it would be ironic if the, one yeah, of those cops was one of the well, one of the GTTF. Good question. What did you, as a person who experienced this, when you heard about the Gun Trace Task Force and getting, you know, the seven cops who were robbing people and and stealing overtime and and do, what did you think? I mean, from your experience, how did you react to that? I wasn't even surprised. To be a hundred percent honest, yeah. I mean, it's like okay, we're in 2017 and this is happening. Well, this happened. This has been going on for for years, and you know, it's just different things. Like, and a lot of the a lot of things are coming into light about some of the things that the Baltimore City Police Department have been doing. But this has been going on for years. Mm-hmm. Well, and, and so how are you doing today? I mean, how is your life? now i mean do you feel like you've put some distance or you are you okay yeah um <laughs> yeah i mean generally speaking yeah um you know I, I it j- looks like you have a nice uh wedding ring on I do. Yeah, I do. yeah so now you know i'm married i have two kids um i work for uh maryland department of transportation as a uh, engineer so i mean generally speaking kind of going through all of that i would say you know 13 years later I'm still doing well. Um, I think from that experience has has helped me to want to give back in the community mm-hmm. um, <clears throat> and, you know, kind of do things to, you know, try to mentor and help others from, you know, experiencing some of the things that I experienced. And, you know, by sharing my story um, could definitely hopefully help somebody else. Oh, okay. Well, listen, and we really appreciate you joining us on Truth and Reconciliation. Thank Your you. story is the kind of story that we want to tell on the show. And um, we appreciate you coming in. And, and, you know, anytime you want to come back and update us on, on any thoughts you have about policing, we would like to have you back, okay? Sure. Thank you. Okay. And that was Evan Howard, who is arrested and also the one of the primary plaintiffs in the lawsuit against the city over zero tolerance with the ACLU. And you are listening to Truth and Reconciliation. What did I do? Thank you for joining us for Truth and Reconciliation. Truth and Reconciliation is produced by Taya Graham, Stephen Janis, and Sean Yost for Ace Spectrum Productions. The show is edited by Stephen Janis. Thank you to our engineer, Sienna Greaves. Please make sure to join us for our next podcast and contact us on Facebook and Twitter if you want to recommend a topic for us to discuss. I'm Stephen Janis. I'm Sean Yost. And I'm Taya Graham. Thank you so much for joining us on Truth and Reconciliation. Truth and Reconciliation.